From Carry the Load, these are Lessons from the Front, stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. On 15 March 2018, Jolly 5-1, an HH-60 Pavehawk helicopter with seven occupants, went down in western Iraq. Jolly 5-2, the other aircraft in the section, is circling above. Those in Jolly 5-2 are actually equipped and trained for this very sort of mission. They could have been there in a matter of seconds to determine survivors, but they weren't allowed to land. Dan Bradley was an Air Force Lieutenant on his first mission as a Joint Tactical Air Controller in the strike cell the night Jolly 5-1 went down. And he recounts for us the events of that evening and the leadership decisions that were made that still haunt him to this day. Further adding to his internal conflict is how he has personally benefited from such a tragedy. Please remember to like, share, review, and subscribe so that these stories and the journeys of our protectors will be heard. I'm your host, Todd Boating, and I welcome you to my conversation with Dan Bradley. March 15th. March 15th, 2018. So, this was my very first deployment and my only active duty deployment. We got into theater in Iraq and we were supposed to get there late February. We got held up in one of those, one of those old Soviet bloc countries. Um, we got held up in Bulgaria for a week. So our entry got delayed, which meant that the people that we were ripping out got delayed. So they were still there. I am in the strike cell in what's really my first ever night as the JTAC for the theater. So, um, it, real quickly, a strike cell. Strike cell. Explain to people what a strike cell is. I'll keep it short, but if you want a whole book about the, the history of the strike cell and where it came from and why it was as effective as it was, uh, read Hunting the Caliphate. Great book. Fantastic book. Hunting the Caliphate. Hunting the Caliphate. Um, but a strike cell, and it's uh, the simplest way to explain it is if you've seen Apollo 13 and you've got mission control, um, it looks a lot like that room. I see. Granted, not as nice. You're in Baghdad. A lot of plywood. But, a lot of motherboards. Yeah. Uh, uh, screens. A lot of screens. Yeah. And you've got rows of personnel that each have their own responsibilities. You got one person who is controlling the entire room or trying to get everyone in the entire room to work together towards a common goal, which is accomplishing a strike. That's the strike director. And he sits two rows directly behind front and center, which is the JTAC or the team of JTACs, the Tactical Air Control Party. So the entire purpose of that room was back when... President Obama authorized boots back on the ground in Iraq. This was 2011, maybe. Okay. He authorized a very limited force. And the solution to that force and what that book, Hunting the Caliphate, talks about at length is how do we wage a war against the Islamic State with limited resources but over a vast geographic area? Well, the answer is to wage the war from the air. So if we bring in a small team of highly specialized, highly trained people and put them in this new concept, the strike cell, 
we can take all the information that typically would be going out to individual ground force commanders, centralize it in one spot, and we can, we can wage war from the air across the entire theater all at once, which is to say, I can have a strike in the Hammond Mountains. 10 minutes later, I can have a strike on the Syria border. 10 minutes later, I can be getting ready to gen up a strike north of Baghdad and say, oh, wait, we've got troops in contact. Let's put this strike on hold so we can go address this situation and then come back to it. In essence, you've got one JTAC and one group of people in that strike cell with the ability to drop bombs anywhere in theater at a moment's notice. It's a force multiplier is what it is. So this was my first night as the lone JTAC in that strike cell. Now, I'll never forget, I had a four screen setup because the root word of the word officer is office, so you have to have a lot of screens. <laughs> so on my left screen, I had maps. On the screen next to that, I had the air tasking order, every jet that was coming up um, that day and the next day. And on my screen right of center, I had Merck. You familiar with Merck? No. Okay. It's basically instant messenger. And are you messaging with troops on the ground? Are you mes messaging with other operation centers? Messaging with other strike cells, other operation centers, guys on the ground. Basically, it, it allows anyone in theater to talk to anyone else in theater in an instant without having to use a radio. Which was, it wasn't a new technology. But it's the but written the, word versus... Exactly. Okay. So... Merck, when you get a new message, whatever window that message comes in starts flashing. You can customize it with sound and stuff like that too. And all, all 20 of my Merck windows flash at the same time. Never seen that before. That's new, right? And we start getting information. Fallen angel, fallen angel, fallen angel. Here's the grid, last known. And I'm not sure if everyone saw it at the same time I did, but there was this look around the strike cell of just like, is this real? Like that, that was honestly the first question I asked, is this real? Because this is not something that we train to seriously or as seriously as we should. There was this maybe naive hope in me because like I said, I had been in theater for a couple of weeks, had never struck, had never even controlled an aircraft to that point. Th this was... This was my first time ever getting on a mic in theater. And we get our first images back of the location of the crash. And the only way I know how to describe it is we, we were pretty confident that this was going to be a recovery mission, not a rescue mission. Um, what kind of aircraft was it that went down? This was, so it was Jolly 5-1, which was the lead of a two ship of terror rescue modified Black Hawk helicopters. So um, as far as we understood, and as far as I understand it today, they were on a mission. They were on a genuine tasking to go out to a town called Al-Qaim. Al-Qaim is on the western border of Iraq with Syria, right along what we call the MIRV, the middle Euphrates River Valley. Um, that is the hotbed of ISIS activity between Iraq and Syria. A lot of border crossings, a lot of security issues, just in general, a lot going on. And we had a small base out there with a small landing zone 
they may have been pre-positioning for a rescue mission, but they were in their their intended landing zone was right at that base in Al Qaim. Jolly Five One navigated into a steel cable hung between two basically radio towers. And once it impacted that steel cable, the the helicopter was no longer capable of flight, burned into the ground. And uh, for the next week, our entire tasking was the recovery of Jolly 5-1. So that was how I got my introduction to, uh, to the war in Iraq. So you go from, from watching your screens to an all-out alert that, you, you, that you've got a fallen angel, which means a, an aircraft going down. Um, you find out very quickly that uh, the aircraft, Jolly 5-1, hits, hits a cable, goes down. What are you doing at this point? I think all of us are trying to figure out what our role is in this mission. What, what are we actually doing? What's my responsibility? And because, like I said, we didn't train to that as seriously as we should have, um, or as seriously as we could have, nobody really knew. No one, no one had any idea. I'll never forget the, the strike director, who, one of the greatest leaders I've ever come across, um, strike director, the only one time I've ever heard him raise his voice, yelled at the top of his lungs, everybody was just as shocked as I was. So the strike cell goes from this flurry of activity to dead silence. And he said very concisely, never forget, the mission is recovery. What conditions must be met for us to move on? In other words, we still have a war to fight. We are in a recovery mission. What conditions do we have to meet to go back to fighting a war? Which was... Not what I was expecting to hear, but what everyone in that room needed to hear because we did still have a job to do. War wasn't stopping. There was still plenty of whack-a-mole to be played. But we had to handle this situation as quickly, effectively, and professionally as we could to continue on with other taskings. So you said it's, it's not what you would have expected to hear. So what did you expect to hear as a young second lieutenant? Uh, I, I, I mean, was, surely you didn't expect to hear, all right, everybody stop. We, right. we talked to the Taliban. They're, they're going to hold off at this point. So when, or not the Taliban, but, but you know, the bad guys, I'm not, I'm not even sure what I expected to hear. There was so much activity and it was almost, this is, this is weird, but it was almost comforting for there to be activity because once we all stopped, it felt like. The world was running away without us. Even we, we maybe stopped for 15 seconds to listen to what that major had to say. But it, it was almost comforting to be, to be loud and be active and be rushing because it felt like you were moving. It's like treading water. What, what happens when you have a fallen angel situation? What does everybody's responsibility become? Because before it was like you said, whack-a-mole. Obviously, that's not the primary focus now. Correct. Uh, what I'm about to say is going to come off as a little bit critical of how we ran operations in general. Um, and, and that doesn't bother me because it's, it's true. Um, like I said, the strike cell was intended for a very specific purpose. 
we we are building a cell from which we can wage war rate excuse me wage war through the air against any location in theater at a moment's notice because it was so successful at the level it was intended to be successful at everybody else wanted their fingers in this pie and there was a a great deal of ego in this and this is where the criticism is going to start to come out there was a great deal of ego in senior level leadership on regardless of what division was in regardless of what corps was responsible for waging the fight in Iraq and Syria there was a great deal of ego that so when, everyone wanted to strike. When you say everybody wanted their fingers in the pie at this point, was this internal to the Air Force, or did this did this expand to the other branches? It expanded to the other branches as well. The, uh, the term JFAC is Joint Forces Air Component Commander. In other words, he's in charge of every air asset in the theater. One day, we had a strike go wrong. It was not a strike that was controlled from the ground at least not at our level. And without going too deep in the story, bomb missed its target. Bomb struck the wrong thing. Good amount of civilian casualties, good amount of collateral damage. There was, there was a lot of fallout from this. It didn't come out until later that the JFAC, the Joint Forces Air Component Commander, the, the guy in charge of every air asset, was in the cockpit and dropped that bomb. Why? When you say in the cockpit, do you mean literally physically in the cockpit? Or I mean, do you he, mean like a drone and he was driving it? He literally physically was in the cockpit of a jet in a combat zone and dropped the bomb. And none of us could figure out why. We also knew we couldn't ask. But every time a decision like that was made where someone who was responsible for something drastically important decided this isn't fun. This isn't, this isn't sexy. This isn't the war that I want to fight. I'm going to put myself in the cockpit, or I'm going to let myself make decisions on strikes. Something horrendously bad happened. And it kept happening again and again. That was one of the things that made me, I'll just be, I'll be blunt about it, that was one of the things that made me lose faith in the mission, was I lost faith in leadership. A great leader is someone who listens, yes. A great leader is also someone who does what they say going to do or does what their assignment is you're not going to do what your assignment is i don't want you on my team so for these people at all these various levels to be shirking their true responsibility that enables the rest of the war to function so that they could have a slice of that tactical pie and incredibly frustrating to this day so jolly five one hits a cable and goes down on and wrapped out um, and then you found yourself as part of the actual recovery mission. Correct. So my role from the strike cell was managing the entire stack of aircraft. Because like I said, every asset in theater, this, this becomes a priority. We have Americans who are on the ground. We don't know their status. Aside from the Americans that are on the ground whose status we're not sure of, there are assets on the ground that are sensitive. Mm-hmm. There's technology and hardware on the ground that we need to make sure it does not fall into the hands of people we don't want it to have right. that information. Um, it became my role and my team's role out of the strike cell in Baghdad to manage the entire recovery process and, and the, the strike cell as a whole to manage the entire recovery process right up to the point that that desert was back clear again. 
we were at a point where no one was quite sure who could make certain calls on the air or on the ground. And it came, it came to pass on the night that Jolly 5-1 crashed. The Target Engagement Authority, new term, um, basically the strike director's boss, came into the strike cell and said, do not let Jolly 5-2 land. Now, Jolly 5-2 was the wingman of Jolly 5-1. Just right. like there were pararescue men in Jolly 5-1, there were pararescue men in Jolly 5 pararescue men in Jolly 5-2. And that was just the wildest order to me. Because if I've got injuries on the ground, in any scenario, people I really want responding to that are pararescue men. So we've got pararescue men circling other pararescue men. Curious that we wouldn't want them to land. That's kind of their job. Um, not only was that a weird order, but no one was sure whether or not that was valid. Was this at, at night or in... It was, this was at night. Okay, so it was a nighttime, which makes sense. But okay, so I'm sure there was some fog of war there, and so and much pe- fog of war. People didn't know, and and for 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 those who've never heard that term, the fog of war and friction are the two things that happen militarily in battle that you cannot predict. It's out there. It's going to hit you. It's going to obscure your vision. You just don't know when and how and to what extent. So Jolly 5-1 hits the, hits the cable, it goes down. You've got the wingman, Jolly 5-2, who is ready to go in due to the fog of war, do not land, keep circling, maintain security, I'm sure is what they're hearing. So who is going to be responsible then? Based on what you're saying, there's still no clear, clear-cut recovery. You're right. Who is responsible for the recovery at that point? Is it the Air Force? Is it the troops on the ground? It has been almost five years. In March, it'll be five years. I'm not sure what the answer to that question is. I've read all the documentation on that mission. I'm still not sure. Doctrinally, I know. I know know the answer. Okay, so let's start there. Doctrinally... Who was supposed to recover them? Doctrinally, the Army unit that owns that ground is responsible for that recovery. And all the assets that the Air Force brings to bear are, to use a business term, subcontracted. We're not necessarily at their mercy, but we're there to support their mission. But that wasn't what happened. So what happened? What happened for the longest time was very little. For it, if there's one thing that frustrates me to this day, what happened for the longest time was very little. And then once more, so you have so many, like I said, fingers in this pie. You've got the strike cell that's working out of Baghdad. You've got the not a strike cell strike cell working out of Kuwait. You've got personnel making decisions at the Baghdad strike cell level that are significantly of significantly higher authority that should not be in that room contributing to those conversations, at least not at that time. You've got the Joint Personnel Recovery Cell, the JPRC, which is designed for things like this. They're, desi- they're, they're SEER, uh, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, Escape a- experts. That's their task. By and large, Air Force personnel. And where are they located? 
I got to think at the time it was Baghdad. Okay, so not, not, sure. not co-located with... Not uh, co-located. Okay. Um, but, but that's their sole responsibility. In, insofar as that they are responsible for coordinating the effort. When it comes, and that's that's the problem. The strike cell was great at what the strike cell did. Strike cell was not great at things the strike cell was not designed to do, but it became a catch-all. It suffered from its own success. People said it can probably handle more. It can probably take this on. And then when a situation hit that it was not familiar with, it was ill-equipped and ill-prepared to handle a situation. But people still kept relying on it. They said the, the decision needs to come out of here. the The actions need to come out of here. And that it didn't match. So how long did the bird stay on the ground before personnel arrived in a recovery position? About a matter of hours. Okay. So in a matter of hours, was it deterrent? And, and of course, you've got a second bird up there mm-hmm. that could have made it a matter of minutes. Could have made it a matter of seconds. And so, did anyone survive that accident? Everybody who was on Jolly 5-1 was killed in action. And was it determined that they were already killed in action before that decision was made to keep 5-2 circling? It was not, no. That was, that was part of why it was such a mind-blowing decision. If, if that situation happens in the real world, if, if you've got a Chinook that... Crash lands. That's about as real of the world as you can get. Right. In that situation, who are you calling? You're calling pararescue men. We've got pararescue men already here. We don't need to call anybody. The, the mission is tailor-made. So that was why it was such a frustrating and mind-blowing decision. So to this day, you still have no idea? To this day, I have no idea. Do you know who made the call? I do. I was in the room when the call was made. So the call is made, and I know you don't want to talk about, you know, who made the call, and that's, I respect that. But the call is made. Did anyone raise their hand? The highest ranking member, and, and you understand how, how important chain of command is. Um, not just for good order and discipline, but for CYA and for making sure that things happen the way that they're supposed to happen. Of course, chain of command relies upon everybody in that chain of command, knowing their role and responsibility and excelling at it. Um, the highest ranking member of a strike cell on a day-to-day basis is a major. The person who made that decision had multiple stars. So it's one of those things like, Imagine you're you're managing a baseball team and the owner of the team comes down to the dugout and taps you on the shoulder and says, I'm going to pinch hit. You can tell him no, but that's probably the last thing you're going to say in your job, right? And you're not even sure if you can tell him no. His team. So the major that was in there is a major that, that um, or is an officer for whom you had a lot of respect. A ton of respect. And he was very hamstrung by the stars that said we're not landing that bird without putting anybody in a position where they might i'm not sure if these people are still in the military um he did everything that he could within the bounds of being respectful 
and within the bounds of knowing his role to act like he didn't hear that. It's well played. A couple times. So the, it was, this was, there was no miscommunication here. This was an out and out, I am overruling your decision. Even though it is a tactical level decision, I am overruling that, that decision and I am making the call. Correct. So it took y'all a couple hours. Who finally gets on the ground? Around the time that 5-2 made it to the ground, the, uh, the QRF, the response team out of Alkheim, was arriving on site. Um, and how did they arrive? Air or land? No, they, they arrived by land. So it, it was not far. I mean, a matter of minutes to drive from the, uh, the train station that they were at out to that actual crash site, but to mobilize teams to get everybody. A ready, matter of minutes. To get everybody briefed. Moving. So they could probably see the bird go down. I would, I would probably say that. Yeah. I, I can't confirm it, but I would imagine that if somebody was trying to see it, they could see it. I mean, I've, I've been to that location. I've seen those towers. And if it was at night and it was a crash, Sound travels differently at night. Sure does. There's certainly a whole lot yep. of uh, uh, of light that's going to happen in a situation like that. So if it takes a matter of minutes, chances are they saw it. But Fair probably chance. what I'm hearing you say is everybody at that point is waiting for somebody else to give the, uh, the go-ahead, which that's SOP, Standard mm -hmm. Operating Procedure. Correct, yeah. And all the while, you've got a bird circling that could have just – made coordination to to your folks there and uh on the ground and say need you to cover the uh, uh the perimeter we're going out in uh down into to check for survivors if there was something that i've had to reconcile in the last five years like some sort of guilt that i should have said something or should have done something uh to change the speed at which that response happened that would be it um I kind of live under under the assumption that no one's crazy, like no one's actually making decisions that would negatively impact themselves or the people around them. That's just not how humans operate, especially at such a high level in the military. But I've gone through that that exercise a million times in my head, trying to figure out why that decision was made, and it will never make any sense. It, it will frustrate me for the rest of my life. And it frustrates you because there is a possibility that there were survivors when it first went down. Always a possibility. Um, yeah. Knew it was the wrong call in the moment. Also didn't know how to express that. Not sure I rated the authority to express it at all, but sure wish I had. It's funny how that works. Of the people that died in that crash... Most of them were from the uh, New York Air National Guard. They were pararescue men out of the, the guard base in upstate New York. It's a guard base that we do a decent amount of training with. You know, mm -hmm. They would come up and use our bombing range up in, uh, in Fort Drum. Uh, had a good relationship with that unit, but didn't know any of those individuals. The one, in, in fact, I didn't know anyone who was affected in Jolly 5-1 
but the relationship still came out of it as a as a byproduct of that. How's that? Um, that that's how I I met the family of one of the pararescue men, Mark Weber. So, Mark, again, I've never met Mark Weber. Um, Mark was a, an Air Force Academy grad, class of 2011. So he graduated the Academy in May of 2011. I entered the Air Force Academy in June of 2011. So ships passing in the night there. Um, we were in training at approximately the same time and in approximately the same location. Don't think I ever actually met him. I come to find out in the years since that uh, that we were in the same room for a couple different occasions. Um, we were in the same room for a funeral. I want to say that would have been uh, 2016. We were in the same room for a funeral. Um, but really never met Mark Weber. Wish I had. And, and it's funny how small the military can be. You know this. Like, friends of friends. It's, it's been fascinating in, in the last, last couple of years to find out who I know that knew Mark well. And every single one of them loves and respects Mark. Um, just fascinating how that networking happens. So when he passed um, on Jolly 5-1, you didn't know him. Didn't know him. But you reconnected with him here. That's right, here in Texas. How did you reconnect with him here? So on the anniversary every year, I, uh, I make it a point to, to look up if there's any new articles or publications on 5-1, the event, or the people. And um, I feel like that, that's almost one of those least you can do things. Like, say the name, keep him alive. Um, and having such a close connection to that event and being so frustrated by that event, it, it, it's, it's very much a, uh, a healing thing. Well, in one of these articles I pulled up in 2021, they were talking about Captain Mark Weber, Air Force Academy graduate. Things that I just, I, I guess I hadn't known about Mark. And uh, as part of his bio, they say he survived by the, the Weber family of Bartonville, Texas. Well, I was relatively new to Texas. I had moved down here from Colorado in 2020. So I Googled Bartonville. And it is 10 minutes from my house. And I'm like, I, I don't think I've ever been slapped in the face by God so directly. Like, there you go. There's, if you ever wanted a time to talk about it, I just made it for you. Have at it. And uh, come to find out that Mark's dad, also an Air Force Academy grad, so is one of his sisters. Um, the reason that's important is it gave me an avenue to connect with them, aside from just showing up on their doorstep, right? The things I'm most grateful for in my life are all things that I came into in ways that I wish hadn't happened. You know, I met my wife, or reconnected with my wife, in the wake of a, uh, an aircraft crash in which the pilot was killed. Um, met the Webbers in the wake of Jolly 5-1. And I wish Jolly 5-1 hadn't happened. I wish I didn't know 
uh, didn't know the name Mark Weber, and I wish I didn't know the Weber family. But God, am I grateful for him. And that's one of the things that's drawn me back to my faith is God has, has woven such an incredible, incredible tapestry in my life that I couldn't have made if I had tried. Like, you could have set, set me down in front of a bunch of note pages and said, write your story. Couldn't have written that one. So when you got to sit down with them, you connected with them, and you sit down with them for the first time. Did they know all of the, the details that you've shared with me today? That was a, an incredibly, looking back, an incredibly awkward uh, time to meet them. Um, when, I, when I went over to their house, they were kind enough to host me and my wife and um, you know, sat down, we had dinner, and I knew at some point this was going to come up. Um, Ron's a direct guy. It's one of my favorite things about him. He'll just and, and he'll, Ron is Ron's, Ron is Mark's dad. Um, Ron will just tell you what whatever's on his mind. We're sitting there cleaning up the plates from dinner, and uh, he just looks across the table at me and goes, "So let's talk about Mark. Let's talk about Jolly Five One." I was like, oh. I knew it was coming, and I, I was happy to talk about it because. If there's anything that I can do to give them information they didn't know or bring them some form of closure, like, by all means. Um, because I, I can't imagine what it's like going through that. And I'm sure there's, there's got to be questions they have. And there, there are questions that they asked me that I had some of the answers to. There are questions they asked me that I didn't have some of the answers to. Um, but, man, that was an, that was an emotional night. Um, I think all of us at some point were crying around the dinner table. Um, but it also started a relationship that I wouldn't give up for anything. I can't wrap my mind around what it takes to go through a loss like that, to go through the isolation that that has to cause, to know what questions you want to ask and either not be able how to say them or know that you're not going to get an answer, or even if you do get an answer, that's not necessarily something that you want to hear. Um, to go through what they went through and to 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 stay the people that they are. Oh my God, they're they're better humans than me. Like they're they're cut from a cloth that I am not made from, and um, they've been fantastic role models. They've been gracious people. Um, there's been emotions at times, obviously. But in no way, shape, or form are they hiding uh, the fact that Mark is in their family. Uh, the, the, you know, the way that they talk about Mark is it's, it lights up a room. And it lights up their eyes. And I, I don't think that, that they spend too much time thinking about the what's or the why's. But I, I think they spend a whole lot of time talking about and thinking about and reliving the person that Mark is. Like, God, we could, we could sit here for hours and just talk about how incredible this family is. Um, and it would, still wouldn't do it justice. Sounds like they kind of approach it, you know, 
the way you were talking about earlier, that people aren't going to make, we have to believe as human beings that people are not going to make decisions that are knowingly endangering someone. And it just, it sounds like they, they've approached it with that level of thought. They're, they're very wise people. And, you know, doesn't mean mistakes weren't made. It doesn't mean you can't second guess decisions. Of course. And, and that's one of the things that I've personally struggled to reconcile, still struggle to reconcile is, you know, I'm not trying to play Monday morning quarterback and, and say that we could have done this and we could have made a much more positive impact or we could have done something right where something else went wrong. And I, I, at the same time, I don't mince words when I'm critical. Um, there are a lot of things that I wish had gone a certain way that didn't go that way. And obviously going to frustrate me for a long time coming uh, that that was the case. But um, when, when I talk about how all these different events that I wish hadn't happened have molded my life in a way that I, I would shudder to think if my life was any different. Like, I, I wish that that uh, that U2 crash hadn't happened out in California. But if it hadn't, I wouldn't have reconnected with my wife. And we've got a baby girl. She turned a year old uh, just this last week. And I shudder to think of what would happen if that hadn't taken place. How do you reconcile being so grateful for the outcome of something and so grateful for what you have with saying, obviously, I wish this hadn't happened? It, it's that middle ground of, do I get to be grateful? You almost feel guilty. That's exactly it. Do, do you get to be grateful at what you gained out of loss? And I think the, the, the biggest piece to me now is, you know, just giving myself some grace that other people have afforded me that I haven't been willing to afford myself. Um, but again, the Webbers, and it's not just Ron and Margaret. That's an important the point. The entire family. They afforded me grace that I wasn't ready to afford myself. So this goes back to the guilt. Truly, yes. Not, not just the guilt of... Of what you've gained out of this. Exactly. Not just the guilt of the event, because that's, that's one thing. Like you said, things can happen. Things can change. Um, a lot of times events happen that you just don't see coming. There ain't a damn thing you can do about it. And you're, really on, you're just on the receiving end. Um. On this one, it was, they loved us. And I don't mean, oh, they love us. I mean, they took us into their home and loved us. They accepted us. Even though the way that we had been connected caused so much pain. I wasn't ready to accept that. They were, but I wasn't. Uh, I mean, it's... There, there's such a gap to bridge between being devastated that something occurred and being so grateful at the outcome of it mm-hmm. that bridging that gap has is, is just been a true challenge. But they've shown me how to do it. So you told me that the Webbers mm-hmm. actually connected to carry the load. They did, and Mark in a, was... In a unique way. Mark was featured um, at the uh, the most recent Carry the Load event, 
And uh, again, no intention of putting words into their mouth or anything like that, but I, I know exactly how much it meant to them to know that this this community, this carry the load community, this former operator community, this former military community, um, was was ready to honor Mark. And I think that's one of the most unique things about carry the load. You're you're honoring people who never got the opportunity to take off the uniform. So I'm I'm very curious. I mean, obviously, you know, you're carrying Mark Weber. You continue to carry Mark Weber. I am. And this has been largely about Mark Weber. But I'm I'm curious, what has Dan Bradley taken from this? You mentioned that you have a daughter who is a year old. Mm-hmm. She is going to, in a very short period of time, grow into a young lady who is going to challenge you in many ways. What does this life experience for you teach her? If she can take anything from that, I would hope that it's that life is fragile. And that is not to say that you should protect yourself and insulate yourself and not take risks. It's that you should live every day like you're not sure what's coming on the next one. You know, they, the, the Air Force Thunderbirds came in to Fort Worth earlier this year, and one of the things they did was really great. They, they put Mark's name in the wheel well of the lead jet. So when the jet lands, the panel opens, his name's right there. They took the Webbers and they took us and a couple of other people out onto, the, uh, out onto the tarmac and, you know, walked around the jet. They asked Ron and Margaret to say some things, you know, tell us about Mark. There were a good half dozen of the Thunderbirds who knew Mark. And how they, they told him how special it was that they got to fly with him that day. But the story, Ron, Ron tells stories about, about Mark that are just absolutely hilarious. And he tells them like he's standing right next to him. Like he's trying to, you know, rib, rib his son a little bit. Um, the, the people who were on the receiving end of that story and the people delivering that story, they had stories to tell about Mark because Mark lived every single day as fully as he could. You know, Mark was, as far as I understand, incredibly outgoing, a little bit goofy, loved God, fun to be around, and most importantly, confident in who he was. And everyone I've talked to who's known Mark well over the years basically says that, you know, they miss being able to continue to experience that, but they'll never forget that. So the years that Mark spent on Earth was short, but his life doesn't really feel like it's over. Mark's, Mark's still here, and that's one of the things that I, I hope I can pass on to my daughter. It's life is fragile, but if you live it well, it's, it's not about measuring it in numbers. Mark is going to continue to impact people for decades and decades. 
Sounds like he is. I know he's going to impact me. Well, he definitely has. Dan, thank you for sharing. I really do appreciate you, uh, you know, bearing your soul a little bit. Um, I hear the, I hear the conflicting feelings, but something tells me that Mark is up there smiling, saying, thanks for stepping in. I hope so. Um, if there's one thing that I think I could change about my life, I wish I could have at the very least shaken his hand. But, um, Thank you for giving me the uh, the opportunity to talk about Mark, and uh, thank you to the Webbers for um, being willing to let me share. Um, like I said, not my story to tell, and the story is so so much bigger than me. Like I'm, I'm I'm a tiny tiny little uh, little footnote in this story, but the way the story's impacted my life and will impact my life for the rest of it, it's just. God works in some incredible ways. Yes, sir. Thanks, Thanks Dan. No, thank you. If this resonated with you in the least, please subscribe and like, and please, please, please share it with at least one person. These are the stories that make us uniquely American. These are the stories that preserve the integrity of our nation.